I am going to keep this intro short and sweet and get right to the point and right to the conversation that you're here to listen to. First, very quickly, if you don't already know, you are listening to the Fuck It podcast, and I am Caroline, your disorganized, haphazard host. And I am about to play for you my long and wonderful conversation that I had with Africa Brooke. She is currently very well known as the author of a viral open letter titled Why I'm Leaving the Cult of Wokeness. And we're going to get into the work that she does and what led her to her current way of looking at things and what experiences she's had and how her work ties in with what many of us refer to as cancel culture, but we also talk about why the term cancel culture is maybe not the best way of describing what's going on for many different reasons. Um, So I really hope you enjoy. I'm just going to get right to it because it's a nice long conversation And I will talk to you briefly in the middle of the conversation and at the end. But other than that, enjoy my conversation with Africa. And, um, and I'm just gonna uh, welcome you on the to the podcast as if we have not been speaking, which is always the most awkward part of the whole thing. Oh, hi. Good to see you again. We have not been talking at all. Um, Welcome to the podcast, Africa. I'm so, so, so excited to talk to you. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that we've been able to do this, actually. And I think it's happening at just the right time. Um, And I say that because it's, you know, obviously we're coming towards the end of the year, but I think just based on some of the topics that we're going to be touching on from what I know, it's just, yeah, I think it's happening at just the right time. And I'm just so thrilled to sit with you. I mean, you're, you're hilarious. We've been laughing already and we haven't even started. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes. I, everyone, you know, I let people know yesterday on Instagram and they were like, what you're talking to Africa? Like just so excited. So (laughs) I can't wait. I can't wait for people to listen. Um, but yes. let's let's start at the at the beginning, um, mm-hmm. because you have gained a lot of notoriety for your viral open letter mm-hmm. uh, called "Why I'm Leaving the Cult of Wokeness." I think yesterday you said it has five million reads yeah. at this point, which yeah. is um, just amazing. But uh, writing viral letters isn't actually your job, and nor is being no. an influencer. And same with me. <laughs> right. So will you tell us more about what your work actually is and, and what you do? Absolutely. Absolutely. So even though most people would have seen my work being shared on different social media platforms, the only one that I have personally is Instagram. Instagram is not my work at all. I am not an influencer. Um, What I actually do on a day-to-day is I support people that are in and out of the public eye with self-sabotage. That has been my area of focus for the past four, nearly five years. Um, And it's something that I do as a consultant, as an accredited coach, and as a writer, I do a lot, a lot, a lot of research in that area. 
And in the past two years, it's evolved a little bit in that I also now start to take a close look at self-censorship, which is what we're going to be speaking about quite a bit in this conversation. But all of that came from my own personal experiences. And it started with me finally getting sober in 2016. So I had tried to get sober so many times and some people might be familiar with my story already, but some people might not. Um, So it's worth sort of just putting out there. So I had a very, 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 very big problem with alcohol. And the way that I drunk was I was a binge drinker, a blackout drinker. I, to have one drink, it was just not something that I ever practiced or wanted to practice from the very first time that I drank when I was 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And I do live in a country in the UK where drinking is a very big part of the culture. Um, yeah. I don't know what it's like for you, Caroline, where you are, but um, here in, in the UK, in England, very specifically, drinking is huge. Um, and it's kind of seen like a as a rite of passage, especially if you're younger. It's just seen as, you know, it's just what people do, um, especially when they go to university, et cetera. But I didn't even go to college, university. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still had that very aggressive way of drinking. And when I was about 19, that's when I first consciously realized that something was not quite right about this. But again, it's seen as a rite of passage. So no one really takes it as seriously. And I was a binge drinker, a blackout drinker, but I wasn't drinking every single day. You know, I wasn't craving the bottle every single day. So it's very difficult for people to actually see that there's something wrong, but not even just people for me to really you know, drive the point home that something isn't quite right, even though I was blacking out every single time. Right. So fast forward some years on when I was 24 in 2016, that's when I was like, okay, I had relapsed seven times by then. And I had lost so many people around me. Even my party friends had decided, okay, enough is enough. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when it com- when it comes to that point, <laughs> they have to kind of do, you know, almost like that soldier sort of wave and just wave me goodbye right. because it's, it's done. Um, and you know, my partner at the time, still one of the most incredible men I've ever met. He was so supportive of me, but he had to give me an ultimatum that. I need to take responsibility for the person that I became when I was drunk in a blackout and something had to change. But again, I had relapsed seven times before then. And I had tried so many different strategies, you know, that I won't go out with certain people because I know how I get when I'm with them. But again, I I was externalizing. I wasn't taking responsibility for me, Um, you know, that I will, okay, I will have two glasses of wine and then I'll have a water and then I'll leave it for a few hours. So just all of these strategies that never really worked because I thought moderation is what I needed. I I never entertained the idea of total abstinence right and Um, and that's hard like like you're saying that's hard in a culture where it would be seen as very odd you know to actually that's that's it that especially when you're young that's really hard Mm -hmm. really hard to come to that decision yeah absolutely and also another thing about it there was also a huge identity element in that Mm. I didn't know who I was without drinking because I had started 
drinking in this way from the age of 14 or starting to romanticize the version of myself that came out when I had drunk, which in my mind and externally it played out this way, more confident, more desirable. I could kind of enter a room and didn't have to think about my insecurities. You know, I, I could cover it up very easily. And that led me to the path of kind of crafting out this party girl image. And I was very hooked on that version of me and other people were, you know, because when it was good, it was good. When it was fun, it was fun. And it, it was very, it was very addictive. I always think I wasn't addicted to the alcohol itself because I was never physically dependent. It was, it was more so for mental dependence. Yeah. So I had tried so many of these different strategies, but in 2016, enough was enough. I was so fucking sick of my own shit. I was like, all right, Africa, fucking hell. What are, let's try once more, okay? Right. Let's try this once more. And another thing, and I always say this, if you've heard my story before, you would have heard me repeat it so many times, but what has kept me sober from 2016 to now is the fact that instead of just being so sucked into my own subjective experience, what is wrong with me? Why am I doing this? Apologizing for things that I didn't remember, etc. I just started to think, okay, what is actually happening to my brain when I drink in this way? Mm. What, what is keeping me in this cycle of destruction? Obviously, that's not the language that I was using at that time, but right. intuitively, this is what I was feeling. And I was just curious about what the fuck is happening to me. Right. You know, it's, I'm not just doing this because I hate myself. It's not, it's not a moral failing. I'm not doing this because I want to. There's also something almost outside of my control, but within my control at the same time that's happening. And I've always been very interested in just reading whether it's stories or getting information from mentors, or whether it's just ancient text, philosophy, psychology, et cetera. Again, I didn't go to university, but I, I think I've had the best forms of education maybe because I didn't go because I wasn't yeah. so fixed onto one thing, right? Oh, yeah. And so I, I, that's when I fell into the world of psychology, when I started to really want to understand what was happening to my brain and what was happening to me in terms of my core beliefs, what I believed about myself, what I was capable of, what I was not capable of. Also, my father was an alcoholic himself. Um, so what things are kind of hereditary, what are not. I just started to get curious. And that kept me sober because that meant it, it weakened the shame. It stopped being about me. And I started to look at my own experience in a more objective way. Oh. And then... I started to share my story out loud. I've always written since I was about 10 years old, but I didn't have any sober friends at the time. And because I, there was still an element of shame, I didn't feel like I could tell my family about what I was experiencing and even some of my friends or people that knew me. So I went onto Instagram and I started an anonymous account called Blackout Bell because I used to black out and I'm a bell because I'm a, like a Southern bell <laughs> from America or the South. Um, so it was I love cool. it. I love it. It was called Blackout Bell and it's still the same account that I have today. Now it's just my actual name. Um, and all the posts from day one are still up if anyone's even oh, interested wow. in seeing that. But it's such an interesting journey because 
people meet me where I am now and a lot of people might not know where how I've ended up being how I am so I just started sharing my story anytime that I felt that I was going to drink I would just anonymously journal something and because when I still used to drink I used to take so many beautiful pictures of like cocktails kind of romanticizing what was really happening behind the scenes so I when I was still anonymous I was just posting all of those photos and then on month three I wrote this long letter one of two very important letters that I've written in my life and this one was in 2017 where I just revealed myself and I said I'm not living in shame anymore this is actually who is behind this account I shared it with my friends and my family. I, you know, shared with them some of the findings that I had as to what was really happening to me when I was drinking in the way that I was. And my story and my journey got picked up by different people and different publications here in the UK. And I had a chance at the time before sobriety was even, you know, this brandable, marketable wellness thing in the way that it is now. It was not like that five years ago. So it was quite important for a young person to be speaking in the way that I was. Um, And then through that, because I was still started actually to get even more curious about psychology, came across concepts like self-sabotage, and then it just stuck with me right? Because self-sabotage in the simplest way, it's you getting in your own way, you getting in the way of a goal that you say you want, but your behavior conflicts that. Um, And then I just got consumed by that entire world, did many different trainings so that I could really amass some actual objective skills and methodologies, worked with different mentors, spoke to people that were struggling with different forms of self-sabotage, Um, And that's when the work that I do evolved into coaching. I got accredited as a coach just so I can really, really start to do that, that very specific work without my subjective experience being at the center of it. Um, So I've always been very focused on human behavior and the individual and why we do the things we do, our capacity for change, why we self-destruct. It's always been about the individual. And then I would say about two years ago, but more intensely in the past year, that's when I started to look at, okay, I'm seeing what I know professionally and personally to be self-sabotage. But now it seems like in terms of looking at things through a cultural lens, there's collective sabotage. Mm. We say we want certain things, but our behavior is so in opposition of all of these goals. So that's how my work has evolved into self-sabotage, which is what I still do now with my private clients and publicly, but I'm now much more interested in what I call collective sabotage and self-censorship plays a big role in that. And I've seen all of these things in my own sobriety journey and now I just look at it through the cultural lens. So that's what wow. that's what lands me here doing. That is so fascinating that you're able to look at these dynamics that are happening. Yes. Some call them cancel culture. Mm-hmm. We can def- we def- can def- we can talk about that too. How people yes. actually talk about this, but yeah. you're looking at it through this unique lens, and that is probably why your work is so refreshing to people because you're able to explain it in a certain way that people probably have not considered before. Yeah. But you know, what's so crazy Africa, when you were telling Mm -hmm. your story, there is a huge parallel 
to my own experience with disordered eating and my, yeah. Oh my gosh. My epiphany with my own disordered eating, which I talk about as a sort of addiction. You know, a lot of people talk about food addiction. I actually believe that for way more people, there is a, a a dieting addiction and an addiction Mm. to just like you were saying about kind of like the, um, the way we see ourselves and the kind of person that we, that we want to be, that makes us feel good. It makes us feel special, you know, dieting and kind of micromanaging the way we look not only is completely applauded and encouraged in our culture, and it can become really disordered for a lot of people really quickly. Um, but there is this addiction to kind of the distraction and the lifestyle and the Mm. euphoria of it all that is really hard for people to let go of. And my epiphany, my epiphany that this was ruining my life was Mm. at 24. So when you said that yours was at 24, I was like, Oh my God, I wrote it down. Wow. Yeah. It's fascinating. Very similar kind of, um, journey there just with, you know, a, yeah. a different part of our lives. Yeah. And as you say that, actually, I'm, I'm really curious to know when you had that epiphany at 24, had you had many moments before that, when you had started to see that something wasn't quite right, or did you always find really smart ways to justify it? Mm, oh, that's such a good question. So mm. I had been dieting again, since I was 14. So it was 10 solid years of really, um, knowing that there was something wrong, but not understanding what was wrong. I thought the issue was that I was a food addict because I could not stay on a diet for more than a couple months. Um, I would be religious about it. And actually I also compare the way that we sort of go about our collective cultural dieting as a sort of Mm -hmm. cult mentality as well, because it's this indoctrination Mm. of this is what you have to do and you're weak and you're irresponsible and you're addicted to food and you have to control yourself. And, but it actually sets up this cycle for most people where they find themselves really, really fixated on food, not understanding how the actual biological and mental parts of dieting are causing that and perpetuating that. So it's this vicious cycle and we don't understand that it's not really our fault. It is the cycle that we're in. So I went for 10 years, you know, putting myself back on diets and so desperate because I felt so out of control. I, I was diagnosed with something called PCOS, which is a hormonal syndrome that they usually blame on diet and weight. So I was like, okay, I got to have to get a handle on this. I have to Um. be really, really religious with this. And it just couldn't have backfired worse. And this is a very consistent thing that I, that I find with the people that I have worked with and the, Mm -hmm. you know, my readers that there's just this terrible understanding of how this works and how it does affect our relationship with food and health. Um, But I, I was trying so hard to, to heal my relationship with food, which to me meant to to stay on a diet and stick to it perfectly for the rest of my life. And I couldn't do it. And I didn't understand what was wrong with me. And, and halfway through, I read the book intuitive eating, which is an amazing, I mean, it's helped so many people. It's, it's about this very thing. It's about how, you know, dieting directly leads to binging and, you know, we need Mm. to learn to trust our bodies, but I, 
couldn't hear it fully. So I read the book and I said, okay, great. I'm going to take this and I'm going to listen to my body so carefully and so meticulously that I never overeat. And I always eat the perfect amount and I become really skinny and my life is perfect. So I just, I just applied it through the lens that I was already operating. You know, the, the way that I saw diets is how I applied intuitive eating. So I had, I was trying but I, I was, I was failing and I didn't understand what was happening. So it took, you know, very specific experiences and it took failing at this enough times and for long enough and becoming (laughs) miserable enough that Mm. I eventually, you know, a couple things, a couple seeds were planted where I was doing paleo. And I heard from one woman who said, Oh, you know, I've been going, low carb and it's, you know, it's ruined my hormones and I, I want to have another baby. So I'm going to, you know, try to eat more food and gain some weight and see if that helps. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? Like, I'd never, ever heard of anything like that before. So it was little things like that. And then it was this one final binge where I was like, oh my God, I, I'm doing this to myself. And it, it's actually the diets. And not only that, it is my obsession with weight. It is the attempt to micromanage my weight that is putting mm. me back on diets that is keeping me in this cycle. So it was a big epiphany. I decided to let go of a lot of the things that I had been prioritizing, which was my weight and this perfectionism with food that I thought was going to improve my life. And it was actually yeah. destroying my life. And I started doing research. I was like, okay, well, I have no idea if there's anything to this, but it's, it's this crazy intuitive journey that I'm going to take myself on, but I'm also going to see if I can find other people who have similar experiences or, you know, what is the science behind this? Is there any science behind this? And luckily, you know, a couple months into my journey, I found all of the science that corroborated what I was experiencing. And then, you know, just like you, I started writing, I started writing anonymously. I bought Mm, the handle. uh, Really? Yeah. Again, I, I, it was very, it was a very personal kind of embarrassing thing that I was struggling Mm. with. And I, and I also bought the website, the fuck it diet, because that's how I felt. I was like, fuck it. And what year was this? This is 2012. So this was almost 10 years ago. I know it's crazy. It's insane. Um, but my family is like, they're like little prudes. So having a a (laughs) curse, having a (laughs) curse, even to this day, my mom is just thrilled (laughs) that, (laughs) that there are curse words. And that my second book also has the word fuck in it. She is so so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but so I wanted to keep it anonymous because of that in the beginning. And I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't want everyone to know I needed to protect the experience a little bit. So it took me maybe a year or two before I, before I started actually sharing my full name. Um, but yeah, so there are so many parallels. There are. Isn't that nuts? It is. It is. And I, this is truly why I was really looking forward to speaking with you because I could feel that just through um, the way that you approach certain conversations that you have, I could see those parallels, but to hear you kind of say it out loud, it's just amazing how it can be a completely different vice, if you will, mm-hmm. but just how the same patterns just run through so many, ah, it's amazing. It's amazing. I know, I know it is. It really is 
pretty neat to see. Oh my. Okay. So, you know, let's just talk a little bit about your realization that kind Mm -hmm. of led you, you know, the past two years, Mm -hmm. um, what you've been noticing going on in the world and how that ties in with, you know, we spoke about it a little bit before, but how that ties in with the work that you do and the way that you sort of define all this Mm. through the lens of self-sabotage, collective sabotage Mm -hmm. and, and censorship. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you, Caroline, but the past two years have been pretty (laughs) fucking wild. (laughs) I can't say I've had a good time. I can't. It's been been kind of mad. But what sort of led me to writing the open letter that I did, because I think that's that's the sort of flag in the ground that really helps me understand the past two years. Because me writing that letter, why I'm leaving the cult of wokeness, was me just feeling so fucking exhausted by everything that the past two years had become, but especially the last year. And very specifically, for me, over time, I just started to notice that even as a very confident and outspoken person and as someone that had been looking at concepts of self-sabotage and self-destruction, et cetera, et cetera, and the importance of making yourself uncomfortable for a greater good, um, even as someone that knew themselves in all of those ways, there were areas that I felt that I'm not allowed to touch in terms Mm -hmm. of cultural conversations and the things that you're supposed to be on board with and the things that you're supposed to sort of outwardly announce and reject. There were just areas that I felt I I couldn't speak about. And 2017 actually was when I started to feel this. So another result of me getting sober was me starting to understand that I was carrying a lot of sexual shame. Mm. I think, especially as women, there's so much shame that's attached to our sexuality and our pleasure that just goes unaddressed for most of our lives but for me in getting sober everything came to the surface everything that I'd been suppressing came to the surface and my sexuality was a part of that Uh, but in terms of sexual pleasure very specifically because when I was drinking I felt as if I could only express desire if I wasn't conscious if you will. Um, I only felt that I could be my wildest self sexually. If I had drunk something or smoked something or snorted something, I felt like I could only feel connected with a man if I was under the influence, because then I could be relaxed. I wouldn't judge myself for how I'm, how I am, but in sobriety, I couldn't run away from those things. They had to be addressed. So in my sharing, generally, I started to share those aspects of my story, the my sexual pleasure and wanting to remove shame from it. So me and a couple of friends started a sexual wellness company called Cherry Revolution, which was absolutely incredible. It was encouraging women in particular, but for everyone, encouraging people to start having honest conversations about pleasure and sex. And I loved it so, so much. 
But something that happened in starting a sexual wellness company is that it immediately got lumped into feminism. I never mm. fucking said that it was a feminist brand, right. but it got, <laughs> right. and I didn't mind that it was because right. I am someone that has feminist values. I don't think feminism should just go into the fucking bin. I do think there's a version of feminism that we have today, which doesn't align with a lot of people's values, right. which I think is a bit questionable. Um but at the time, it just got lumped into kind of feminism and a lot of the talks that we did and a lot, a lot of the events that we did would be in very feminist spaces. And with that, you have a lot of conversations about sex and gender, et cetera. Wonderful, wonderful conversations, especially in 2017, when people were very open to discussing things, even if they don't understand or don't really right. agree or you want to point out contradictions or to ask questions, the environment back then you could have certain conversations, right. but I just started to notice that over time, it just became very difficult to ask even the simplest questions. That's when I first started to notice the extremes of identity politics, that there was almost um, like a hierarchy of who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak. And it's mm. usually based on identity markers, whether that is your race, your sex, your physical ability, just all of these things that I knew why they were in place. Because when someone explains certain things, you're like, okay, I get it. But in practice, they never really worked because they right. seemed to be dividing us more than ever. But it's almost like you couldn't even point that out. Right. But again, right. these, right, you couldn't even point it out. But at this time, these spaces were still quite small and very new. So I didn't really think much of it. And it wasn't really spilling out into my everyday life. So I, it was more of me observing that, huh, that's interesting that I, you can't ask certain questions. But then I just sort of move on. But then over time, I started to notice, and I think 2016, also the year prior, had changed so much. But I started to notice that it wasn't just about sex and gender anymore, that things were starting to become so politicized just generally. And then race had also been a huge component in the, in, in the conversations that would happen. And I guess that's because of intersectionality, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I just started to notice the level of division was starting to concern me, but I couldn't talk about it. I could, but I felt that there was a cost to me speaking. Right. And I felt that because I'm Black, there are certain things that I shouldn't even say, hey, but this doesn't quite make sense. Why do we seem to be more outraged about this? But when this is happening in our own community, we don't, I, I just didn't, right. I just didn't right. understand. Right. I just didn't right. fucking get it. Right. <laughs> um, and then it all just started. So there wasn't really one moment, although I will say 2020 is when everything sort of came to a head for me. There wasn't one single moment it was just over time I started to notice that it's becoming very difficult to have just the simplest conversations, that there seems to be a script that you're supposed to agree with and just be okay with that. That, you know, something that comes from a very good place, for example, if you look at the origins of the word woke in itself, mm -hmm. it means the state of being aware. That's the, right. that's the authentic definition of it. And, you know, it originates in the U.S., Black America, and there are many reasons as to why that word was really necessary. Right. But over time, it got hijacked. This is what I believe. It got hijacked by very well-intentioned people 
that without realizing or maybe realizing turned it into an ideology and into a in which the ideology I refer to as wokeness and I think many people do an environment where identity politics has become so extreme and performative activism has just been normalized and you know dehumanizing people is okay if you mask it in social justice language you know and the simplest questions can't be asked because this means that you're anti not just right. someone who's curious right so i just started to suppress all of these things because i thought maybe it's a me problem uh, because everyone else seems to be agreeing so wouldn't maybe- it be nice if we could just do a little work on ourselves <laughs> and then the problem goes away right <laughs> right but then the more that i started to speak with other people behind closed doors even some very prominent people who were also spouting the same regurgitated messaging i started to realize no this is this is not a me problem there's something more sinister that's happening here um and I think for, for myself and most people, 2020 kind of was the, yeah, I, I think it was the nail in the coffin for a lot of people. And I know that it definitely was for me. And that suppression, I just couldn't hold it anymore. And that was the result of the letter that I wrote. So that's a lot that I've just uh, thrown at you, Caroline, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> but you can do with that what you yes. will. Yes. Well, okay. So first of all, the way, so defining this sort of as an ideology and comparing yeah. it to cult mentality. I compare a lot of things to cult mentality because I mm-hmm. actually think indoctrination is, is way more common and prevalent yes. than we tend to think. So when yes. I saw in your letter back way back when I read it, when I saw you compare, you know, this, what's going on right now to, to an ideology, to cult dynamics, it mm-hmm. couldn't have resonated with me more because I was I was feeling the same way watching it happen. You know, in the beginning, I was like, and by in the beginning, I mean like really when it blew up in summer of 2020. um, And there was a lot of talk about like anti-diet work is anti-racist work. And if you aren't constantly talking about anti-racism, you are like doing it. And I was like, whoa, whoa, okay, okay, okay. So I was like, okay, well, all right. So let me like, let me figure this out. Like, let me Uh have, you know, have people on the podcast who will talk about this and, you know, let me make sure that I'm not ignoring this conversation. And so quickly it became like, it it was so clear that literally no matter what you did, it was wrong. (laughs) Right. Oh, hi. I'm just going to interrupt this for one moment, just to give you what we could call an ad, except it's not a regular ad because I'm not doing ads these days. But what I am going to talk to you about is, can you guess? It's my second book. My second book is coming out in February, on February 8th. It is called Tired as Fuck. It is about my own personal relationship with extreme diets and extreme self-help and burnout. And it's also about your relationship with diets and self-help and burnout and our cultural relationship with all of those things and if you are at all interested if you like me at all maybe you'll like this book too and you can find out more by going to the slash tired and there you can sign up to read the beginning of the book and see if you like it I talk about the moment where I realized I was extremely burnt out and what I decided to do about it I decided to go on two years of rest and You can also, 
If you like the beginning of the book and you like the book, you can pre-order the book. It helps so much. Pre-orders are like the best thing that you can do for an author when their book is coming out. And I have all of these bonuses and goodies that I send to people who've pre-ordered and who've entered their proof of purchase. And you'll find all of that if you sign up for the first part of the book. So if you like this podcast, if you want to support me, I'm not doing ads these days. I'm not making money from the podcast. So pre-ordering my book is, it's a small little thing that you can do to help me, to help me to be able to keep writing, to keep podcasting. It means a lot to me and I am sending goodies to people who pre-order as a thank you. So again, it's thefuckitdiet.com slash tired. And other than that, let's get back to my conversation with Africa. No matter what you said, no matter what kinds of questions you asked or whether you didn't ask a question, whether you spoke up or didn't speak up, you were doing it wrong. You were either centering yourself or not talking about it. And, you know, it was just like, it was very clear, very quickly that there that this was like French revolution vibes kind of mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. like people were just going to keep turning on each other until there was nobody left. Yeah. And I was also writing, I was writing my second book that summer. I just gotten a, my second book deal literally the day before New York shut no down. Way. And so I had that whole summer into early fall to finish the book. And the book is very, very heavily memoir, my personal experience with Mm -hmm. extreme dieting and extreme self-help ideologies and, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how I make sense of it and my own burnout and all this. And Mm -hmm. it was during the summer where like white people weren't allowed to talk. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I even just hearing you say that out loud (laughs) is fine. It's mad to me. I just, I was like, I don't really feel like I'm allowed to be writing a book right now. Like, I feel like it was a very bizarre experience. And, and it wasn't that I didn't like, I didn't even really know what to think. I was at first, I was like, okay, well this, you know, maybe this makes sense. The idea of anti-racism makes sense. Like Mm -hmm. we all have, you know, biases and to pretend that we don't is, you know, maybe a lie. So it actually, Mm. you know, I can see the parallel to, you know, diet culture. We all have these, you know, biases against different body sizes. And, you know, it's, it's better for us to admit it. And then we can work through it as opposed to pretend, pretending it doesn't exist. So there was enough that made sense to me and I wanted to explore and I wanted to, you know, talk about it and, and talk to people who, you know, whose work it was, but it just so quickly became there. It lost logic halfway through. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. But I wasn't allowed (laughs) I was not allowed to say that. So I was like, oh dear, I just don't, I don't even know. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, there was another experience where I think it was, um, it must've been early June, maybe late May, early June. Mm -hmm. I had decided one of the rare times that I've actually taken a social media break. I decided something is wrong. My brain is on fire. I can't look, I cannot, the world is just, you know, it's going under. I can't Mm -hmm. look at my phone. I need to just delete Instagram off of my phone for a week. I just need Mm -hmm. to do that. And so I did it. And it was, you know, of course there was like the phantom going, my thumb would just go to that area all of the time. Right. And then after two days, I was like, okay, I wasn't like, I didn't have the impulse to check it anymore. 
I had this freedom. I felt really good. I actually really loved it. And then I decided to put Instagram back on my phone Mm -hmm. and it just happened to be blackout Tuesday. Oh, (laughs) and no one was allowed to speak. We had to put a black box and I don't know, there was a hashtag. Maybe it was blackout Tuesday. I'm not sure what it was, but I didn't know that because I hadn't been on social media. So I went on social media and I, I wrote some posts about social media. I was like, social media is not real life. Like I've had an amazing break and, you know, blow, we're not meant to, you know, consume, you know, so, so much misery all of the time. Like it isn't good. And oh my God, did I do the wrong thing? I mean, I I didn't even understand what was happening because I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. So I got all of these, all of these comments that were like, wow, way to make this about you. Like, (laughs) don't you realize what day it is? Like you really need to. And I was like, I I don't even know what, I don't even understand what I did at this point. And then enough people were like, it's blackout Tuesday. You should, you know, you really like, you know, whatever. I don't know. So yeah. So then you're weaponizing your your fucking privilege, Caroline. Oh, oh, wait, yeah, wait, of so- course, of course. <laughs> and, you know, the irony is, I in my in the fuck it diet, I talk about privilege nonstop. Right, I like, you know, right. it's like a big. I'm very aware of it, but like, yeah. it got to a point where there was nothing. There was, there was nothing that I could do that was no. that was right. So, no. you know, and that's when I mean this was like, you know, pretty early on in the summer of 2020. And I was like, this is mm-hmm. fucked. Like, this isn't, this makes no sense. This is not going to end well for, for any of us. But I was like, oh, okay. All right. And then I would, oh, <laughs> so then I put up a black box. Yeah. Then I, then I deleted Instagram again. Cause I was like, fuck this. I'm putting up a black box. I'm going <laughs> for another couple of days. Like I can't even handle this. And then later that day, I was like, let me just make sure that people are happy with the black box. And I went on, I just looked at the comments through. You got roasted. Yeah. Because the black box was also a problem because it was clogging up the hashtag and whatever, whatever. So I was like, oh my God. So I put Instagram back on my phone, deleted the black box and was just like, I didn't say anything. (laughs) So that was my initiation into what became a you know, a pretty crazy summer for everyone where nobody knew what to do and what to say. And, you know, and I was like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. I better jump on this, you know, better not miss this train better have, you know, better have people on my podcast to talk about anti-racism and, you know, tie it back in with diet culture, because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And, you know, it was kind of, I could call it a slightly hollow, um, it's not that I didn't care. I did care. Of course. It just felt like there was a gun. To, there was a gun to my head. No, no, you that's, know? that's, yeah, of course. And, you know, all jokes aside, um, although I do listen, if someone's listening to this and thinking, how can Africa laugh at this? Believe me, I know the seriousness of all of this, but I also find it so fucking hilarious because it feels like a sketch. It doesn't feel real. I know. It, do- it doesn't feel real. And I speak to so many people who are also very sucked into the high emotion of the time. And I think it's important to be able to hold multiple truths. In- and when I say that, I personally mean, I understand how highly emotional it was because I got sucked into it myself. Yeah. And yeah. I don't, I don't regret 
that because what that shows me is that I cared yeah and I know yeah and the same goes for you which is why you invited the people to have the conversations which is why you wanted to make sure you were doing the right thing we care we just want to do the right thing and at the same time when you think of the platform in which we're trying to do that it's very different to how we would be doing this in person right where people come together and they mobilize as groups, as communities in person, and they have a shared goal. They understand what the intention is. Because with the Black Square, for example, it started from a music company. I don't know which music company that it was. It was a handful of people that were going to be doing the Black Square just within the music industry in itself. Right. But then it just spread like wildfire into the mainstream, but people didn't really understand where it had originated from and why it was created. So again, there's no um, common goal. People are not heading for the same door. People are heading in so many different directions. And it's not even as if you personally, Caroline, have consulted or sat down with even a small group of people who can talk to you about what is going on, not in an educating kind of way, but say, hey, let's come together. You have a platform. We have a platform. How can we have this conversation in a useful way? That is not what was happening. People did feel that they had a gun to their head. You speak now, or it means that you're a white supremacist, or it means that you're a bigot, or it means that you're anti-Black, or it means this about you. But it's thousands of people telling you that this is what you should do and this is how you should do it. And exactly as you said, and I said this in my letter, it's a trap because how are you supposed to please, even even if it was 20 people, but a hundred thousands of people when there is no shared goal in mind, it's it's doomed to fail. So yeah, I, I completely get what you mean in terms of feeling slightly detached because you're there's no room for you to actually think critically or even ask any questions as to what is actually going on. What, what can we do that's actually going to be effective? You're just being shouted at to take action, but there's no specific action. You're just supposed to guess which is going to be the right one or what the majority is saying. And it's very, it's very disturbing and confusing. Mm. Yeah. So, so, all right. So, so you kind of, talk about the, these dynamics that are going on below, yeah. like underneath mm-hmm. what's actually at play under what we call cancel culture. And I, you know, I've wondered, I've, I've really wondered whether if I really want to have conversations about what we call cancel culture mm. is cancel culture, the term, the most effective term to use to actually right. communicate whatever you know, I want to communicate about it because it is such a polarizing term. People have wildly different ideas of what it actually is, of whether it actually exists, of what, what kind of a person you are, if you use that term. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that some people shut down before the conversation even starts when you use the term cancel culture. Um, So let's talk about what it actually is and what's actually happening. Right. So oh, that's, that's such a good question in terms of, is it a useful term? Because right. the thing is, it is, especially today, it's used almost like a catch-all, right? Yeah. To a point where people don't really, 
it's almost as if people will intuitively get it depending on where they stand in the conversation Mm. or some people will completely shut down and reject it depending on where they stand in the conversation. So I don't personally think it's useful to always use as a catch-all, although sometimes I will use it depending on the context. If I think it it makes sense for what I need to say or for people to understand, then I will use it, but I like to be more specific. And just based on what I do professionally and how I like to use language in a very intentional way, I much prefer to refer to it as collective sabotage, Mm. um, which is a term that it just came so organically to me, as I was saying before, when I realized that I have seen this pattern play out on a smaller scale, but now we're just seeing it on a mass scale. Because as a group, as people that actually care, whether you care for social justice or just the progression of humanity in general, but in a very realistic way, not in a utopian kind of way, or in whatever way you care, right? right. We, we, we don't want the destruction of humanity. We don't want the demise of any particular group. We all want progress. We all right. want change. We don't, you know, we want people to have the basic human rights and more. Right. But I think we all, we all have very, very different ways of how that can be achieved. And usually there isn't any kind of common goal in mind. And the way that we have conversations, it doesn't tend to be solution focused when we're having it in a really mass scale kind of way. Of course, in communities, people, I think people are very much, especially activists, um, real activists, not the, I want to be famous, so I'm going to make an infographic type of activists. They are definitely having solution-focused conversations, but I think what we're seeing at the moment has just gone to an extreme, which is why I call it collective sabotage, because we're at a point where we're starting to get in the way of what we say we want. Um, So for me, instead of referring it to it just as a catch-all cancel culture, I I prefer to call it just collective sabotage. How have we started to sabotage our goals? How have we started to sabotage the mission of actually uniting people instead of separating people? And I think it's also that we've very much forgotten that there is a middle ground. We seem to believe that you're, and I speak about this all the time, but it's always worth repeating. We seem to think that you're either pro or you're anti, you're either on the left or you're on the right. Right. You're either with us or you're against us. You're either oppressed or you're the oppressor. And we forget that there's so much gray area. I I truly believe that's where most of us do exist. Where And in that gray area, that's where the questions are. That's where the uncomfortable conversations are. That's where people get to make mistakes, not because they just show up and they say, hey, I want to make a mistake, but because that's a part of understanding whether an idea is a useful idea or not, not a useful idea. Maybe it might be pretty fucking shit, but let's hear it first. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) So we can decide instead of sort of suppressing everything underground where people start to become resentful. Because slight tangent, but it ties into this. I get so many messages from people every single week, if if not in the thousands. And because of the way that I speak and because of the invitations I make to just have honest conversation, I get so many messages from people worrying that because of everything that's been happening in the past couple of years, they've found themselves becoming racist. 
Mm. And this might be an uncomfortable thing to hear, but I've been thinking about this actually for the past couple of years that fighting racism with racism is never going to fucking work. When has it ever worked? And when we start to believe that interpersonal racism doesn't exist, that systemic racism is the only type of racism and systemic racism is very real and it is a part of it, but it's also under the definition where interpersonal racism exists, where we don't dehumanize any group because of their race which is what so many great activists, people like Martin Luther King have fought for us to even get to that point. But we have started to get in our own way in ways that are not very useful. So again, instead of me just using a catch-all and saying, oh, this is cancel culture, people are just fucking woke for no reason. Um, I don't think that's, that's very useful. I think we just need to speak in very simple, honest words as to what's going on. And I think sabotage for me is much more useful and it's not a personal attack on any individual. It's just addressing the behavior that we're right. seeing. So what yeah. you're really saying is there is almost a misunderstanding yes. that people are saying, look, the only thing that's happening is that this group that used to be, you know, has been in power, you know, white mm-hmm. people who've been in power for however many centuries, they, you know, the, the only thing that's happening is the group against group. When you're saying, right. yes, that was happening. It is happening. However, it is possible for on a personal person to person dynamic that those dynamics of potential racism, like mm-hmm. quote unquote reverse racism actually do exist and can also be a part, you know, also play into what's happening and will affect and are they are the things that are potentially going to get in the way of this quote unquote goal or the common goal that we don't have. We don't have a common goal as you've been saying. Right. Right. And, and here's the thing. I don't even believe in, in the term. I always find that term so strange reverse racism, because I think it's just racism. Right. Because again, (laughs) to, to say, I was saying this to a friend the other day that to even say reverse implies there are only two races in the entire world, which is something I find so hilarious about the way conversations I had today. Right. You would think that planet Earth, there are only black people and white people, and right. that is it, and right. that is all. Right. Um, and I think it's a very um it's a very simplified version of everything that is happening. And none of this, none of this is about denying the realities that people live under. And I think anyone that is sane and sensible would understand that. But this is just to express that it is all so complex and so nuanced. And we will never get to any, any, you know, semblance of progress if we continue to pretend that it's just a game of white versus black. Because again, it's a, it to me, especially being an immigrant from from Zimbabwe. That's where I was born. That's where I lived until I was nine years old, and it's my first language. I still speak it with my family. I I'm very very connected to my culture. Do not let this accent fool you. <laughs> I you know I still very much Zimbabwean. So sometimes when I hear these conversations, they're very they center the West. They center the West in right. such a profound way you would think that nothing else exists out there and I found myself having to say this all the time but the experience of a black person in America 
and in the UK and in Kenya and in Norway, Norway and wherever else is so different, right. so different. Even a family, even a black family in America sitting at the table, their experiences are so different. We're, we're really not monolithic. Right. And we, in that same breath, I can then also say a white person in the US and a white person that has grown up in South Africa and a white person that has grown up in Russia very different experiences yes. and me just saying that I, I I really hope that it just allows even one person to think oh my goodness we have been having these conversations in such an overly simplified way um, but then you can move from it just being about race and think where else are we having very important conversations in a really oversimplified way that's actually dividing us right. instead of helping us find what actually makes us more similar than different. Yes. Yes. And I really, you know, I, I, I walked into to 2020 very liberal mm-hmm. and I walked out thinking, Oh my God, what is happening? Right. <laughs> what is happening? Both sides are like going so, so far away from each other. Mm. And it's, it's, it almost feel, you know, there are people who will say, oh, this is by design. This is what they want. They want you fighting with each other. So mm. you're not actually, you're not actually able to work for change. You're not actually right. able to direct your focus to the assholes who are actually in charge of you, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who are actually running the show and fucking stuff up. And I just like, I just went like, I despise the just two parties. It, it really, really, really fosters incredible division. And it's like people are on different planets and incapable of even having a conversation. Right. And how many people are are in the U S roughly? How many people? Oh, what a great question. Isn't (laughs) it? There are three people. (laughs) U.S. over 300 million population. Let's see. Let's see what Google. Oh, shoot. I don't have Google anymore. I have DuckDuckGo and they don't tell me. Hold on. You know how Google will like tell you, you can just like say anything and it'll pop right up. U.S. population 2021. Not that it really matters. Oh, yeah, you're right. 333.7 million. Wow. Wow. Have and to I choose the camp. You have to choose which side you're on. Right. How absurd is that? That that many people just have to pick a side. And then just by picking that side, that means your values are predecided. What you stand for is predecided. Your personal ethics are predecided. You couldn't possibly agree with anything from the other side. Right. I just, it, it's, it's insane. It's, it's mad. It really is. And, you know, unfortunately, what I have seen happen is mm-hmm. the side that everyone seems to say are the most uh, welcoming and open-minded and pro- mm-hmm. progressive, the left, which is what, what I identified mm-hmm. as. Um, if you don't 100% agree with everything, you are immediately seen as bad or all yeah. right. Or, you yeah. know, like if, again, if you're not with us, you're against us. And that is one of the huge markers of cult mentality. That's right. it. 
Right. We're going to shun you. I don't like you anymore. You're bad. Why don't you agree with everything we're saying? How could you? You know, I've had this so, so, so much. And I've had it so much from people that are still very much saying, of course, I'm, I'm, I, I will always be a left-leaning person because that's where my values align. That's mm-hmm. just what makes sense to me. But I am so afraid of even expressing the simplest concerns because I know that I will be ostracized, that I won't even be given a chance to redeem myself. Right. And the fact that so many people are finding, and it's not even just a case of people leaving the left and going to the right. I don't think right. it's that simple because right. again, I wouldn't be surprised if some people would be hearing even just me saying this and thinking, oh, it's just a case of people going from one side to the other. No, no. it's people really being so concerned about what is happening within you know, an environment that they've known some people all of their lives and thinking, how did things get to such an extreme? And if that can't even be pointed out, that just further that just further validates every single thing that we're talking about because that's the right. whole point the fact that the conversation won't even happen that it can't even happen yeah it's it's it does scare me i mean i i mm. i see you know i uh, i need to really really have better boundaries with social media because i I just get so sucked in. I mean, there are times when I just go on Twitter or go into the Mm. comments of Instagram and I click on a comment that I know will have some some juicy replies and I just get sucked into reading these fights where no, and it's terrible for my mental health. It's terrible, Mm. but I'm, I'm watch, I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm reading and I'm watching the disconnect. I'm just, and I understand, I understand what both sides think they're doing. Yes. And yet how it is not reaching the other person. And again, I, I just like, I feel like they're just, they're like, they're like on different planes of existence where no matter what they say, it just doesn't reach the other person. It just never could. And yeah. I just read it and I just think, oh my God, we're so screwed. Yeah. <laughs> what is going to happen? Like, where is this going to, where is this, where is this going? You know? Right. Right. I think, I think that too sometimes. And I was listening actually to, um, I think I shared this episode. It was a Joe Rogan's podcast. This is where you lose most of your listeners, Caroline. <laughs> Oh, I follow him now. I follow everybody now. (laughs) I was listening to his podcast and he had Tristan Harris, who um, is known for the social dilemma uh, documentary. And this podcast was brilliant. And another guy called Daniel, I can't remember his last name, but this podcast episode is such an important one because it touches on the amount of troll farms that are out there and the mm. amount of bot accounts that people think are actually real accounts, but they're genuinely placed there so that they can uh, create conflict and outrage. So you will think that it's actually a real person because of the way that they're responding and engaging, but actually they've been planted for political purposes so that they can create outrage on these platforms. And the way they break it down, just a really surgical breakdown, just factual, just very objective as scientific researchers talking about this, 
it's really started to make me think what is actually real, mm. you know, and I don't say this to cause further anxiety, sorry, already done. Africa. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's just to make you think there's so much that is currently happening that we don't have any control over, but what we do have control over is how we operate in those yeah. environments, right? It's right. the conversations that you choose to engage in. It's the conversations that you choose to create on your platform. It's the things that you choose to integrate in your real life. Because I think we are getting to a point of just not being able to determine what is actually real, what is not. And I think what's quite, um, what I find fascinating about social media as well is that I will read something that is so absurd but the way my mind has now been trained, I know what it means. And I find myself thinking, I shouldn't even fucking know what this means, but it makes <laughs> sense. Have you ever read something like that? And you think, I don't agree with this and I shouldn't even know what any of this jargon means. But I, my mind understands it because yes. we, we're seeing it so much. Yes, yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. I, I, always, I always think that. But I think at the same time, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful and I like to express that as many times as I can because there would have been a time when you and I, for various reasons, would have never had this conversation. That's so Would true. have never felt it possible to maybe could have happened privately, but maybe I would have shouted at you to not make me educate you because I'm a <laughs> black woman. <laughs> You're so right. And I need people to point out the the, the hope and, and the, yeah. you know, where I can find some optimism because I do need it. <laughs> I need right. it. And right. that's so true. That is so true, Africa. Yeah. I, yeah. And there are people who are, I, I do think that there are enough people saying, Hmm, is this right? Is this oh, yeah. serving us? Is this, oh yeah. I, I, I do think that that is happening and whether they feel comfortable speaking about it or speaking openly about it is another yeah. is a whole other issue but the fact that i do think that there are enough people who who are sane <laughs> so to speak <laughs> it it is it is and you know i i like to when i share how many people have read my letter so far for me it's not even about the number in itself and it's stroking my ego in any kind of way what it means to me especially because I haven't really received any pushback from it, quite the opposite, actually. And it's always very important for me to note that the amount of uh, Black people and just people that are not white that have resonated with my words, it's astounding. It mm. means the world to me because it's served as a permission slip for so many other people that have felt that they can't push back against this because of their own identity as well. Right. Um, so those are very real tangible examples of people being willing to be like, actually, no, I, I'm, I'm not going along with this anymore. Yeah. I, I won't, I won't do it. And it can be a very silent thing. It doesn't have to be a public thing. And this is right. also something I like to emphasize that if you are someone who's struggling with self-censorship, I never want you to think that the goal should be so you can start to share anything publicly. I, I don't, I think that should be the last thing on anyone's right. mind. I think having the confidence to share publicly 
ends up being a byproduct of something that is much more important and useful. It's you being able to have these conversations in your personal life, because this is also really ruining very intimate relationships because of how our lives have just been so over politicized. Right. Um, Right. So I think I always refer to it as the mob in your mind. That should be the first point of call. You need to have a word with the mob in your mind Mm. before you even start thinking about sharing anything online. You need to, you need to start to think, okay, where am I censoring my own thoughts before it even comes out of my fucking mouth? Where am I shutting myself down? Where am I telling myself that I'm a bad person because I'm thinking about this? Where am I telling myself that if I say how I really feel, this is what's going to happen? And here's the thing. Something could happen as a result of you sharing your mind, asking a question, but that isn't the only side of the coin that we need to look at. What if you end up actually creating authentic relationships with people where you don't have to agree with shit that you don't believe in, you know, where you can ask questions without fearing that you're going to be, you know, canceled. Cause now we all know what that means. And a lot of people are afraid of, you know, cancellation by proximity. If something happens to a friend of yours, you don't want to end up feeling, oh my goodness, I can't even defend my friend because what if the mob comes after me? Right. I think those are the most important things to address and they're very silent and it's a very, uh, it's a process that only requires you and your mind. And I think being able to share things online should be the last thing. Anyway, we don't fucking need it. Oh, yeah. Anything. Well, <laughs> that's, that's another thing like that we are now sort of equate what we put online with right. real life and it is yeah. not <laughs> yeah it's just not and and you know i definitely see this in my own life where i without examination i mm-hmm. i consider instagram you know, I, I i ignore my real life to mm. focus on instagram and that is not okay that is not going to lead right. to anything i mean thankfully i think in the past i would say i would say even the past year i've been really aware of that and, and okay. reminding myself, like, look, I have to, fo- I have to engage and sink into my real life and really prioritize that. And those relationships and moments off of my phone and not, not treating Instagram as this it, it is the most important thing. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's, right. it's like it, for me, it's marketing. It's a fun art project. Sometimes I love writing, yeah. I love, but that's it. That's it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so it, it kind of sounds like to me that it might be about clearly defining what your intention even is on right. those platforms, right. because I think a lot of us have become so boundaryless. I guess this is why my, my boundaries, especially with my audience are very clear yeah because I think so many people are used to yeah I'll I'll tell them listen if you don't fucking like it guess what I didn't ask you to be I love you but you can can piss off exactly (laughs) no but I I I think it's great because it forms more often honest relationship even though it is a parasocial relationship in the sense that they feel that they know me and I don't actually know them for the most part but I think we have an idea that on digital spaces, you're not allowed to have boundaries, especially if you have quote unquote, a platform, people equate that to power, which is just so so, Yeah. It'd be great if I made money off of Instagram, but I do not. I don't, I, I, I see it as a burden in some ways. Right. (laughs) Right. So it's, 
you know, you're, you're allowed to have boundaries, even if you have a tiny, tiny, tiny account and it's just your friends right. and it's on private, you're allowed to have boundaries with yourself and with the people that engage with you. But because we, we have already internalized the idea that it's a boundaries place, a boundary less place, mm-hmm. um, people think they can just say whatever the fuck they want and you just have to take it. Yeah. But I think, but I think setting the terms of engagement is really, really important. And it makes a big change actually, because it shows people that anti-social behavior, which again is, I think an, another very good way of describing cancel culture without using the catch-all because mm. it's so specific it's anti-social behavior mm. and there's also cyber bullying is a very big part of right. that as well yeah and I think it just speaks to exactly what is happening without going into the culture wars jargon right um, right yeah yes oh Africa I could talk to you forever. This is just so amazing, but I guess we should end it here. (laughs) Can you let everyone know where they can find you on the internet and how they can work with you if that's something that they want to explore? Of course. So my website is www.africabrook.com. And the only social media that I have at the moment is Instagram. So you can find me at Africa Brook. That was, that's with an E at the end. Maybe YouTube will be a part of that in the future, but maybe not also, but it'll be mm. fine. The world will still spin. Uh, and I have two podcasts. The first one is called Beyond the Self, and it's all about focusing on what you can control, which I think is really important because I think the way the conversations are going at the moment, it's just about externalizing everything that's happening within you as if you don't play a part in any of it. So Mm. for me, personal responsibility is a huge piece of all of this. And no, it's not about blaming yourself constantly or shaming yourself. It's quite the opposite, actually. It's just shining a light on things that you might not see. Um, So it's very psychology focused, but it's really, really accessible and very simple language. And the second podcast that I have is Unfiltered with Africa Brook, where I just touch on a lot of these areas that I believe fall under collective sabotage. Um, And we just laugh a lot. And it's very stream of consciousness, having the conversations that people don't want to have. But the main focus of that is finding common ground in a divided world. Um, And if you go to my website, you can just get an idea of how I operate professionally, who I support. And if it suits you, you can just send me an email. But yeah. Oh, this has been great. Oh, I'm so, so, so happy you came on the podcast. And I know that people are just going to love this conversation. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so Uh, much. Thank you, my darling. Thank you. And that's a wrap. As usual, you can find all the links that we mentioned, all links to find Africa in the show notes of this episode. And also, if you were on Instagram the day that I told everyone that I was talking to Africa the next day, you may have submitted a question that you may notice we did not get to. We did not get to the questions. Um, We just let the conversation go where the conversation wanted to go. And um, so apologies for making it seem like we were going to answer all of your questions about cancel culture. Um, but we did not. (laughs) Um, but I hope you enjoyed and we are going into the holidays. It is December 20th today. And, um, so we're going into Christmas, New Year's, and I will probably not be back in your ear with another episode until 
2022, but that will be coming before we know it. So I will talk to you soon and I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful holiday and that you're able to connect with all of the people in your life that matter to you and that it's just twinkly and sparkly and filled with cookies and turkeys and potatoes and butter and bacon and presents and I don't know pajamas that's what I hope for you cookies bacon quiche I don't know what people do I'm trying to think like what do I even eat on Christmas who knows it doesn't matter pajamas plaid um wrapping paper coffee I don't know. I hope it's good. That's that's what I hope. And I'll talk to you later. Bye.